the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 17 of the COO Roundtable. This is our second episode recorded from home, so I apologize for the audio quality not being perfect, but I think we've all grown accustomed to calls with with crying babies and and barking dogs and lawnmowers, et cetera, going off in the background. So welcome welcome to the new normal, everyone. Um, today it is uh, the day we're recording this. It's it's Tuesday, April twenty eighth, and it was exactly six years. Uh, six years. Six. It feels like six years. Uh, it was six weeks ago today that we shut the PFI advisors offices down, and we've been working from home ever since. Um, there's a lot of confusion around when and how we'll lift the stay-at-home restrictions. The the latest guidance from the federal government, and it's obviously subject to change, but the latest guidance as of April 28th is if your state has 14 consecutive days of dropping coronavirus cases, you can begin to lift the restrictions. Some states, however, have started lifting restrictions with or without those 14 consecutive days. So it's, it's definitely a moving target. So whatever your specific state is doing at the moment, please stay safe, stay healthy, and do whatever you can to keep these, these numbers as, as low as possible, both obviously from a health perspective, but from, from an economic one as well. For today's episode, we have two fantastic operations professionals joining us. We have uh, Brandon McCurney is, uh, is a partner and director of operations at Columbia Pacific Wealth Management in Seattle. And he is joined by Vib Aria, who was the head of operations and information technology at Shufra Rose in New York City. He recently took on the title of COO. So, Vib, congratulations on the promotion and uh, welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us, Matt. Thank you, Matt. So, Vib, let's start with you. Your, your website says wealth management since 1938. So, there's definitely a long history there. Can you tell us a little bit about the firm? Sure. Thanks. Shufa Rose was founded in 1938. So obviously we'll be celebrating the firm's 82nd birthday this coming May, actually. Uh, so right around the corner. And really what we have been, both in terms of how we've operated and, and who we've serviced, you know, one of the key characteristics has just been sort of, you know, multi-generational. So we've had generations of advisors and portfolio managers and investment professionals at the firm. And we've also have serviced multiple generations of clients and families. And again, just that longevity, you think about 1938, obviously, there's a lot of reference to Great Depression times relative to what's going on. And, you know, you think about a firm like Schufer Rose that's sort of been there, you know, throughout these various economic cycles. And so I think that's been a big source of confidence, both internally as well as, uh, you know, with our clients that we've seen numerous types of economic cycles. Obviously, we're entering an interesting one now, but that's the firm. And, and again, we're also priding ourselves in, you know, continuing to modernize, continuing to focus on next gen. So really almost that kind of 82 years and getting younger kind of mantra is, is sort of evolving at the firm. Just in terms of just some key metrics about the firm, again, like you said, we're based in New York City. We're currently managing approximately $1.5 billion in AUM, servicing approximately 1,200 clients. And we're really doing this through four uh, core advisory teams. In terms of number of employees, we currently have 22 employees. In fact, we actually onboarded an employee uh, through this pandemic while working remotely. So that was certainly a uh, Interesting experience, but definitely a productive one and, and one that was actually, you know, something we're very proud of. And, and again, you know, like I said, as we're, we've been working with multiple generations of clients, that's really been the vision and the plan all along is how do we continue to service multiple generations of clients, again, through this evolving wealth management paradigm, or obviously everything that's going on today in the world, but continuing to sort of be that uh, that advisor, that trusted advisor for multiple generations and now starting to think about uh, next generation. So that's, you know, that's firm in a nutshell. 
That's great. So Brandon, Viv had you with with 1938, but uh, <laughs> Columbia Columbia Pacific's website says we've been delivering qualified investment opportunities since 1989. So that's impressive in in its own right. So uh, tell us a little bit about you guys. Yeah. So we are we're just slightly younger um, than Viv's firm, but uh, the, the 1989 number actually is relating to kind of a family office that was opened up back in back in 1989. The Wealth Management Group actually spun out of that and, and the different alternative arm back in 2010. So we were actually even younger than that. As of today, we, we have about a little under $4.5 in, in AUM and 33 employees. And really, public specifics, you know, whether it's, it's the family office or the Wealth Management Group, I think first and foremost, what we're looking at is our, our clients that we look to serve is good people. I think that's really, really where we come down to. We want to find people that are really dedicated to the process, that really understand all facets that, that come with a relationship, working with an advisor, and want to be engaged in the process their financial success. I think educated clients really can take full advantage of all the services we provide. So I think at Columbia Pacific, we really take that relationship um, mentality with every single client that we, that we have. And so uh, that's, a, that's a big tenant for, for us here at Columbia Pacific. Perfect. So Brandon, this is the part of the podcast that I always say, no one grows up hoping to be a chief operating officer of an RIA. <laughs> and then I tell everyone that when I was a kid, I was hoping to be the third baseman of the California Angels. <laughs> uh, but you got a lot closer to that goal than I ever did. I could barely start for my high school team. But you were actually, saw on your website, you were actually drafted by the Seattle Mariners as a pitcher. So I would love to hear your story and, and how you ended up in your current role at Columbia Pacific. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I always jokingly tell people, I, I went to college to play baseball. That was basically it. And I ended up with a sociology degree coming out of it. And uh, it, nothing could have been more aligned with my with the way I view the world than that. But yeah, the, the baseball thing was, was a fascinating, just amazing experience. I was drafted as a junior out of, out of college. I uh, had an opportunity to, to work through my senior year kind of remotely and uh, end up with a sociology degree. And when I was done with baseball, I turned that page in my, in my life. I, I really wasn't sure what to do. I had some connections in the industry, just via uh, family and, and whatnot. So I ended up in a, in a finance, finance gig here in Seattle. I fell backwards into it in 2009 of all times. I was lucky enough to even get the job, I think, back then. And I started putting some dots together that my background of sociology, finance, they're really just relationships, the study of people, relationships, helping people in finance. And, and it all just made so much sense to me. And that's how this ride began. And then you start to fast forward a few years and through a few really good firms uh, that I've had a chance to work with. I just realized that I love helping individuals. I love being around people and helping them uh, fulfill their dreams and goals. My real passion oddly enough, was running the business and starting to see the day-to-day -day and how that really worked. So I had, some, I had a really good opportunity coming over to Columbia Pacific to, to have an impact on that. And I, I really realized that where my passions lie, where I can have the greatest impact was with our people. Clients were great. I loved working with them. I still love working with them. But my greatest impact, I think, is to be on our people and our culture and our vision. So being able to to use all those skills that kind of came from collegiate baseball, professional baseball, teamwork, you know, all those, some of, some of those cliches that kind of get mixed in with sports, they really kind of rang true. And then add a little sociology study on top of that, I, I really found the fit kind of in the operations world, both from a systems and technology, um, being very orderly and, and process driven, but also the human side that the, the people was really, really a driver for me and, and ending up where I, I ended up. I love it. People, culture, and vision. 
we talk about it a lot that the yep. COO role is so much more than just the quote tech guy or tech girl. <laughs> so I love exactly. that people culture and vision. Yep. So Viv, I talked about at the opening your recent promotion to COO. Can you tell us uh, the story of how you got where you are today? Sure. And obviously, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that PFI Advisors has played an integral role in sort of some of that aspect, uh, which, I'll, which I'll highlight. You know, but for me, you know, kind of 20 years all in within the investment management industry. Actually, started off my career in consulting at a firm called Deloitte, and obviously. You know, you know, the firm, the first client and really the primary industry that I got introduced to through consulting was within asset management and really just kind of fell in love with the industry. You know, I was working at a relatively mid-sized asset management firm at the time on my engagement, really got to see the soup to nuts operational aspects of the firm and just how they operate within, you know, investment management. Really enjoyed it and just, you know, kind of transitioned into the industry. And I've worked my way through various firms, mostly on the large side within the institutional asset management space, the Deutsche Asset Management, was actually at Lehman Brothers through the bankruptcy and, you know, kind of supporting the Newberger Berman evolution prior to coming to Schufer Rose, spent about seven years at, uh, at Bank of America on the Merrill Lynch side. So obviously had some exposure to the wirehouse side and really just playing all kinds of roles, operationally, technology, business management. And so when the opportunity at Schufer presented itself, you know, sort of the opportunity to take all my experiences that I'd done in various places, you know, on a bigger scale, come to a place like Shufro in the RIA world, a bit smaller, but really have more involvement and more impact, multiple levels across all of those aspects that I had previously. And it's been wonderful. And again, as you think about sort of the operational technology stuff, obviously, Brandon just talked about vision, people, culture, a lot of what CEOs do in terms of the workflows and, and process and people that you, you know, Matt, have really articulated through your podcast, your white papers, you know, I think was a resonating point for our firm in terms of the work that I've been able to do and, you know, how the firm is, is sort of relying on, on us on the operational side to execute. And that played a big role in sort of crystallizing that CO title for me. So really appreciative of that, you know, that you were able to do through, through all of your work, Matt. Well, thank you. As I've said before, it's a, it's a passion project of mine. So that's, that's fantastic that it paid out for you. That's, that's great. So the, the topic of the day, of course, we've all settled into these work from home environments. I'd love to hear how your firms have, have both executed your, your business continuity plan and how you've maintained the morale and the culture um, at your respective organizations. And we're still, we're still early in this whole process. So have you even begun conversations internally of how to return to work and what the office will look like? You're both in kind of epicenters, New York and Seattle. So I don't know if you've even begun those conversations yet, but, but would love to touch on that as well. I'll start with Viv. How has Super Rose transitioned to working remotely? So it's an interesting question. As I've thought about BCP mode, you know, for us, I and mean, again, this goes back to one of the key functions of, of the role that a COO plays, right? You think about your technology platform, you think about your infrastructure, you think about your process, and really what we've been trying to do over the last few years is really think about operating as a virtual firm, right? You know, we've got technology in place, everything is moving more to cloud-based solutions, right? You've got VPN technology. The more you can automate through process. I've always thought about it as, you know, if advisors are on the road meeting clients, they still need to operate. They still need the technology at their fingertips to do what they need to do. And so that's what we've built out over the last couple of years. Think about tangible things like migrating and upgrading to Office 365, where you can rely on Microsoft Teams for chatting, you know, or, or comparable technology like that. So we had all that in place. Certainly, we do our BCP testing once a year. So we had just done that in Q4 of 2019, which was obviously 
timely that really for us, Matt, it was really just the flip of a switch just in terms of decision making. Obviously, we saw what was evolving in New York and obviously the rest of the country and obviously the world in terms of the coronavirus and obviously the numbers we were seeing day by day. And then, you know, when you start to see the NBA start to cancel um, seasons and just you just see that this is becoming a pervasive impact and it's creating a lot of anxiety. On March 12th, we gave our employees the option to start working from home. No questions asked. Obviously, we gauge and we're very mindful of, of just employee anxiety around this, right? Everyone has different thoughts. You know, we're in New York where everyone's taking mass transit, subways, buses, right? So crowded situations that we basically gave everyone the option, start working from home as long as you need to. And then obviously with everything going on around the following weekend, March 16th, we officially closed the office. And again, when I say closed, we just all started working virtually. So for us, it's been relatively seamless. We basically took our, you know, everyone's got a laptop at work, you know, it's a docking station in the office. We've also tried to promote more collaboration, but take your laptops, collaborate in the office, We've got Wi-Fi everywhere, right? So obviously a lot of bad happens. So it just a matter of just taking their equipment home or, or using our virtual remote desktop solution. Again, we've taken great care to focus on cybersecurity, which again, another key aspect of sort of the COO role, making sure everything's secure. That for us, it was thankfully relatively seamless. And so we've been operating now. We'll be starting week number eight, actually, on Monday of just really just working virtually. And, and I can't tell you how pleased we are, right? I mean, it's been pretty efficient, right? You think about the time people spend commuting, that they have more time either for themselves or, you you know, just spend more time talking to clients or, or better usage of the time. And I think what we're actually seeing is people are feeling more and more comfortable with the technology. We're having more Zoom calls now than we ever had before. We're talking to more clients now than we had before, probably. And again, all through the through the facilitation of technology. And, and I think it's been you know sort of rewarding that way. Which then to answer your question about when we're planning on going back, I think it's all TBD. You know, obviously we're sort of Probably, probably behind the curve in terms of reopening in New York, as, as you've all seen with the data. But then you also, again, mentioned the aspect of how people get back to work in New York, you know, getting back on a subway or taking a bus. And, and so I think our stance is, you know, we're starting to think about it. We're obviously starting to get some guidance around it. But I think given how well things have been working, I think we're going to sort of see how things go and, and then sort of take things from there and just continue to operate as we have been, at least in this sort of virtual world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very confusing. The, the federal government says one thing, the state says another and your city says something else. So it's it's very it's very tough to navigate. So Brandon, like we said, Seattle was one of the first cities hit. How long have you guys been working from home and, and what challenges have you encountered along the way? Yeah. So we took this pretty seriously right away and, and we made the call to shut the office down March sixth. So just about a week or week and a half or so prior to most, I think, areas around the, the country, if not longer. But it's it's been, and Vid made some really great points, I think, as part, of, as part of being in the operations space, I mean, I think our job is to, to have all these systems kind of in place and making sure that things are working well so that when an advisor does go on the road, that he can access or she can access everything that they need to, to access. But what we're, we're seeing now is all that little pre-planning is playing out now. So yeah, like like Vid was saying, we've had laptops in people's hands for, for, for a long time now, VPN set up. We've got cybersecurity analysis ongoing over the course of the year. So we really felt like the flip of the switch. We, we were able to really implement some really good seamless transitions over the course of this six, seven, eight weeks now, which has felt really nice. It's felt really, really validating for all the hard work that the teams put, put into this, which has been nice. But I think the, the challenge, and I mean, I think it's something we, we probably knew and we've been really cognizant of up front was just how do we take care of our people? Right. It's the it's the, the mental aspect of all this, not just working from home. Right? I mean, that's that's you know, I think the easy part is the isolation. It's the you know, if you're just just with your family, just kind of at your own spot. How do you make sure that the, the team still feels connected? How do you make sure that everyone's still not just saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine, but that they really are fine. that They have all the resources that they need. And I think that has been 
it's not, it hasn't been a challenge, I would say, but it's been a, a, a challenge to, to, to tackle, to, you know, something to consider. But it's doing, it's just doing all these little small things. And sometimes they're kooky, sometimes they're fun. It's just, it's, it's finding ways to get that interaction back with the team that we're kind of missing and craving so much. And the, the technology has been such a huge part of that for us, which has been, been nice. And I think one of the things that we've done, I'll throw a couple of examples out early on, we realized, okay, we're gonna be home for a long time. We thought we were the epicenter and we were gonna be the epicenter forever. And that's obviously transitioned and, and did does that obviously more than, more than most. But we said, okay, we're gonna be in this work environment for so long, we gotta do stuff. So our director of marketing has been awesome. Stacey Schweigler has been great at implementing some really fun team-focused activities like morning stretches and uh, you know, weekly happy hours and all those fun things just to keep the team together to make sure that it's not just business. It's not just like, hey, you're at home, you better be working. Like we wanna do stuff that just has the goal to take a breath, step away from the noise, find some semblance of that human connection that I think we've all worked for for years. So if there's a challenge, I think that's been that's been the one. I think the technology side is taking care of itself. And yeah, and Viv, you made a good point. I think some of this has made others think, oh, we, we can work from home. This is okay. There, there's been some people in the past that said, you know, it's just not really feasible. Well, we're forced into a situation and I think we've done, done pretty well by it, which has been a positive, a positive coming out of it for sure. So I think and then going to the, the last part of your question, it's really early, like you said, Matt, to, to start to figure out when we're going to go back. We're having those discussions. We're trying to figure out what that looks like. We're trying to make our own estimations of, okay, if we get the go-ahead order, are we going to go ahead? Or are we going to take a couple more weeks to really see what happens? I think the well-being of our employees is is second to none. And so we are probably going to be a slower returner into the the kind of more work in the office um, environment. It's just, to us, we've had such a good successful run as it is working with clients and working with each other that the rush, there really is no rush to get back into that and, and maybe you know, end up in a worse off position. So yeah, the conversation is definitely happening, but we're, we're a ways out, I, I think, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, yeah. Yeah, I think Los Angeles, we're in the same same boat. It doesn't seem like they're going to push us back anytime soon. So one of the recurring themes that I always bring up on this podcast is I've got this huge chip on my shoulder about I want to drive the value of the COO. You know, it's such a sales-driven industry. I often have lamented the fact that COOs are, are looked down upon oftentimes because we're not necessarily holding quote, revenue generating position. But I will say, I mean, based on the, the, your last two answers from both of you, I think given what's going on in the world right now, the COO is probably the most valued it, it's ever <laughs> it's ever going to be. But uh, Brandon, I'm going to go to you first. In your experience, despite global pandemics, <laughs> holding that one aside, what, yeah. what can COOs do to bring the most value to their firms? I mean, I, I think we, we are seeing the greatest value of the, the COO and the operations role playing out right now. And I think... What we see playing out now leads to kind of the broader question that you're, you're asking is what's that, what's the value that we bring day in and day out? It's really, even though it's not super fun or really all that interesting to most to talk about systems and integration, EBITDA or whatever it might be, it's all those small kind of constant decisions and sometimes large decisions, but it's, it's the, the, the continuous decision-making thought process leadership that I think the COO brings that builds that infrastructure that supports the sales and advisory teams that I'm sure that, you know, they're aware of it, they're using it, but it's the, the, the constant vigilance and making sure that that is continuously working and efficient, not only systems, but people building out all of that throughout the years 
I think that's where the value really is seen. And I think we're seeing that more so today than ever. But even just in normal environments, it's the, the, the constant leadership and decision making that's being made and efficiencies that are created that people, well, the COO really kind of shines their value. But I think uh, that's one aspect for me. To me, it even goes further. And I think probably even more importantly, at least in my opinion, it's when COOs can get out of and, and the people who I really look up to and, and the leaders I look at, when they can get out of the spreadsheet. They can get away from the budgets and the, the numbers and really start to, to focus on the employees and the culture, building that support network that the firm can thrive in. I think the CEO's job is to empower their employees, make sure that they have all the resources that they need and all the support and be the best professionals that they can be, but also make sure they can live their best lives outside of work. How do we empower them to do that? And how do we weave that back into their, their role at the firm? And I think I'll, I'll touch on this a, a little later, I think, but the success starts with the people. And I think it's our job to be their support structure. Whatever, whatever our people need to be successful, that's where we show our value, which some can make the argument that that is part of the revenue stream, right? If we're, we're helping them become efficient and keep revenue, that's part of our gig as well. But um, yeah, so that's kind of where I see the, the, uh, the value add there. I love it. That was great. Viv, in your opinion, what, in what areas can us ops folks, <laughs> uh, in what areas can, can we all shine? Look, I agree with everything, you know, Brandon said there, you know, what I'd say kind of on a, on a more macro level, even outside of this sort of current pandemic world is I think about the COOs. And again, I don't even think about it as operationally. I think about it as organizationally, right? I know sometimes operationally has this connotation, oh, it's just focused on the back office or the custodial type stuff, the non-client facing stuff. But really for any firm to do well, you got to think about it organizationally. And again, Brandon also used the word vision before, right? So again, it's taking the firm's evolving vision, value proposition, and then making it tangible in terms of execution, right? There's a client experience we're trying to deliver, and it's always evolving. There's going to be a corresponding advisor or client service experience that goes with it. That's always going to be evolving, right? So what's the process that needs to continuously evolve and be in place? What's the technology solution that you need in place? As Brandon said, the people, right? I mean, which is your absolutely most critical asset. Are the people empowered? As Brandon said, are they trained? Do they have the skill sets? Do they have the tools that they need? And are we maximizing everyone's time effectively? You know, so you think about value, right? This happens in a lot of places. You know, if you have client-facing folks doing sort of operational non-client-facing work, the opportunity cost of that time is huge and it's expensive, right? So making sure you've got the right roles and responsibilities in place to ensure that your advisors, your client-facing folks are maximizing their time with the clients. And then, you know, for non-client-facing folks, you've got the resources in place that can handle that, right? So again, I think about opportunity cost of time. So I, I think the CEO plays that sort of imperative role of just as things are continuously evolving, creating that culture of adoption, of embracing change, of embracing new ways of doing things in lockstep with where the firm wants to go, where the firm leadership wants to go, and really having that critical seat at the table and sort of driving the, the tangible day-to-day execution, long-term execution of, of all of that. Great. One of the more popular articles that we've written on our blog was called Integratable Does Not Necessarily Mean Integrated. <laughs> And we've discussed how hard it can be to get an RIA's back office systems working well with one another to create a streamlined, both an advisor experience and a client experience. So, Vib, what have you done at Shufa Rose, not only to drive the integration, but also gain user adoption of your various back office systems? I think it goes back to my previous point, right? Just taking that 
step back and thinking about how we want to operate, how do we want to make doing business with us and within our walls as simple as possible, right? And I think it goes back to some of those fundamental aspects that sometimes gets lost in just looking at technology, right? You go to any of these trade shows or conferences, which, you know, hopefully we'll all get back to one day as travel and all that stuff resumes, right? But it's very easy to fall in love with a, with a piece of technology at a demo and say, oh my God, that's what we need. This would be so great, right? But when, when in reality, it goes back to the process, right? How are we trying to make it easy for clients to open accounts with us? If a client needs money wired to them, how do we do it in a simple, secure, efficient, and obviously compliant way, right? How do we make things easy for us to, to operate, right? You know, Brandon made the point about trying to get out of Excel spreadsheets. Do we make it easy for advisors to manage their assets, right? Their clients' assets and their books of businesses and, and then make informed decisions, right? So to me, it all goes back to just thinking through the various processes, making sure they're efficient. You think about data integrity. Again, you know, the CRM is only as good as the quality of the data that you have. If you've got phone numbers that are five years old, they may not be, you know, sort of a relevant sort of tool to use, right? So you start thinking about sort of the discipline around all that stuff. And then when you think about, okay, well, here are the processes. Here's the data that we need to sort of transfer from point A to point B, from this person to that person. Then you start looking at the technology, right? And, and in today's sort of technology world with open API architecture, that almost becomes a little bit easier. I think where we sort of see challenges happen is people are starting to pass data back and forth without thinking about data integrity, without thinking about process, without thinking about, okay, well, what's going to be the golden source of data for this piece of information, right? And I think just the, the time and discipline that's spent up front makes the integration conversation that much more successful and that much easier. I mean, I think that's what we've spent at least the last few years at Shoe for Rose, thinking about integration in that light. And then you have the technology sort of do the heavy lifting of what you want to do, but it's really well thought out, well planned, well designed up front before you even think about the technology piece. I, I think you're exactly right. It's much more the process than it is the actual technology solution. We've worked with several RIAs that are going through a merger. They've just purchased another firm and they say, well, this is going to be easy because, boy, we just got lucky. They're using the, the same systems that we are. Uh, you know, we're using whatever it may be. We're using this reporting system. They're using the same reporting system. We're using this CRM. They're using the same CRM. This is going to be super easy. The tech piece is the easy part. <laughs> but both of those firms are using that technology in very different ways. And so it can still be difficult. So I love that bit, but it, it is much more the process than it is the, the technology. So, so Brandon, how have you tackled this? with integration and adoption at Columbia Pacific? I think honestly with varying degrees of success at times. <laughs> uh, we we have gotten we've gotten caught at times being really overly optimistic uh, with some of the rollouts that we've done and we've seen a piece of technology that really loved and we wanted to squeeze it in because it, it on its own was 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 really cool. But to Viv's point, we were we learned really quickly, okay, take a step back. Uh, where does this really fit? How does the whole plan and process work together? Why are we utilizing this? How do we want to utilize it? What's the end result? And is it a cool piece of of technology or is it a cool system that does something or is it really for the benefit of the team to make their life easier? So we've been, I think, as of recently, really taking that step back to say, okay, let's learn from these situations on how we rolled out something. Let's be more methodical. Let's be more inclusive. And I think that the key here is I think we're taking a more educational approach to the whole integration and adoption piece. We want to get feedback. You know, I mean, you can't, can't please everybody. You can't satisfy every single need in customization with every technology, but Getting that feedback, feeling more inclusive, and having the team on board with this rollout of something has, has increased adoption, will continue to increase adoption when they feel part of the plan, part of the process. At, at one point, you can say, hey, here's the technology, just use it because I tell you it's the best. Well, that's, that's not really going to work, and it hasn't worked in the past for us. And I think no matter how good or, or great something is, if the team, at least in my kind of experience, isn't fully on board with the why behind it, they're going to be a little hesitant and resistant. And it might be super simple, but eh, I just don't really want to 
don't want to utilize it. It's not my way of doing it. So really focusing on making sure that we present, okay, here's the big value add for you, for the company, for everything. It's bigger than just you. It's how, how is this for the company as well? Doing group training sessions, education sessions, open kind of Q&A on why we're doing stuff. And then we can hit the ground running with, with full rollout. And like I said before, you know, we can't solve for everyone's individual preference, but we find some common business concerns and solve for those and, and really make that adoption piece or more seamless, I think, in the future. Yeah. So and then I could go back to your, your article you guys had. It really hit home that when you're looking at, at all these different systems, each in their own right are great. But how do you make the whole you know ecosystem work together? And uh, just to, again, reiterate what Vib said, looking top level, what that process really is and how you're making decisions around these these technologies and then educating the group on the why behind why you're doing it and how to do it. So Brandon, you've you've had a very common theme in all of your answers. <laughs> people <laughs> and culture. People and culture, which is which is fantastic. So another yeah. area that we know uh, COOs add value is is in that HR component and specifically designing and implementing career path at their firm. So how have you implemented career paths and, and laid out for employees what their career progression is at, at Columbia Pacific? Yeah, I, I absolutely love this this question and this kind of this, this topic. I mean, I think, I think early on in my career, it was pretty straightforward what your career path was going to be in the world of wealth management or finance. Start at one place, you kind of move up and you get into the advisor world and you kind of move on. I never really bought into that. So I don't think of career paths as linear. And then I, I don't really think that you have to stick to a path. You have to have a five-year plan in order to be successful. That's not how I think I measure success or how it really should be. And I what I really look for and when we're talking about career paths, I'm, what makes people tick, right? I think there's a way that you're going to have a, a main function, a main role in, in the organization, whatever that is. But I think there's always ways that we can integrate people's passions into their current roles that can benefit the firm, that can benefit them, make them, you know, kind of grow their professional maturity over time, grow their personal side of life over time. And that's all kind of woven into how do you look at their own individualized career? So I open it up to every single person in our firm. We have open conversations about where they are today, where they want to be, what it looks like this year, next year, and so on. And just keep that evolving conversation going. Because I mean, a, a prime example, so I'll, I'll bring her back up again, our director of marketing, she was a, a client service associate for years and said, I'm never going to be an advisor. I don't want to do do this specific role all the time, you know, forever. I'm really into marketing, event planning, and so on. And it's like, well, we don't have that need. I said, go fill it. Write me a pitch. Let's figure out how we can make that happen. So we have evolved into a, a we've created a new role for her because she was willing to take that step and lead her own career charge. And I'm there and the team, the executive team is there to, to help and foster that. And I think when you're, when you're hiring people, for me, it's really important to be upfront about this, that some people love the box. Some people love saying, okay, here's my box. I need to plan. Then after 18 months, I get to go to this one and move on. And that's just not the, the way that we are going to develop people or the culture we're going to have. I look for people who are really, I don't think entrepreneurial is the right, you know, necessarily the right term, but just people who are driven to strive for their own success. And I think Steve Jobs had this really cool quote, and I'm probably going to butcher it if I'll try to remember off the top of my head, but it's one where he says, you know, it doesn't make any sense to hire really smart people and just tell them what to do, right? We want to hire really smart people and hire them for the culture and have them tell us what to do, right? That's the, the feedback loop that has to happen. I really encourage everyone at our firm and they're developing their own career paths and what makes them happy. Let me know. Let, what can we do better? How can we foster your career throughout your time here at Columbia Pacific? Hire for culture. You can teach people the functions later on in life. I mean, I think that's to me, it's maybe a little oversimplistic, but it's kind of the, the first layer that I look for when I'm talking to people through their career path. 
I love it. That's great. Viv, what have you done at Shufa Rose in this area around the career paths? It's an important topic for us as well, and, and one that's frankly kind of continuously evolving for us. I talked about earlier, really starting to establish roles and responsibilities. So we've taken more time to be more disciplined around job descriptions now and job specs for each of the various roles within our organization. I think what we're trying to do first and foremost is establish the baseline in a more formal way, right? Here are the roles, here are the responsibilities. So at least there's there's no more ambiguity, there's transparency, and it also provides transparency in terms of, okay, well, for the next role, whether it's an advancement or a, a shift to a different part of the, the business, what would, what would I need? What credentials do I need? You know, if I want to be an advisor that's, you know, financial planning centric, well, I need to go get my CFP, right? So starting to create transparency and manage expectations that way. Here are the skill sets you probably need, here are the experiences you need in, in this role, you know, for this length of time. So we're, we're certainly evolving that and formalizing that more. But again, I think some of the points that Brandon made are, are just as important, right? It's again, that culture. You know, I hearken back to my uh, initial outset, you know, working as a consultant at a small asset management firm, I got to see everything. And so I look at our firm, I look at Brandon's firm, we're small enough that you have the ability to see absolutely every aspect of how the firm operates just by nature of our size, as opposed to some of the bigger places where I've, you know, where, where we've all worked, right? It's, it's just harder to see. You almost feel like a a spoke in a wheel. And so what we're trying to present is just that opportunity, opportunity for exposure, opportunity to get involved with projects. Brandon talked about his, you know, his marketing resource, right? You know, we're in the same boat as we're evolving our website, as we're thinking about more client outreach, help us with these types of projects. I know that one thing I specifically say in the interview process, you know, as we're thinking about hiring at any level within the organization, challenge what we do. If, if something seems counterintuitive or it seems silly, bring it up, right? Everyone's got an important voice and let's talk it out. You know, sometimes we're so embedded in our own processes and the way we do things that we lose that objective perspective. Please come and let's talk about it. And if you have ideas to make things better, let's share those ideas. And then that's how we evolve. So I think there's, you know, formalizing the HR talent planning, career pathing aspect of it, which we're, you know, we're, we're working on and we're continuing to strive. But again, it's creating that culture that everyone has a voice, everyone has an opportunity, and just the chance to have that sort of fulfilling experience that you come to a place where your voice is heard, it's important, you have ability to influence and, and really learn about yourself too. You know, maybe I don't like operational work and I really want to be client facing or, or on the flip side. You know, I'm kind of done talking to clients. I'd really like to help run an organization, right? And so we can present opportunities to to kind of get involved and, and see what you like, what you don't like, and help people kind of find their way and sort of guide and, and mentor them through the process. I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but when I first joined Focus Financial, Rudy Adolph sat me down and he said, you're valuable to us for about 90 days. <laughs> and I panicked. I said, what are you talking about? You're valuable to us for about 90 days because on that 91st day, you just sort of fall in line and say, well, this is how we do things here. And he says, I need you for the next 90 days to be very uh, critical of us and just ask a lot of uh, questions to us about us of, you know, why are we doing this? Why do you do things this way? But that always stuck with me is, is, is everybody sort of has that whether it's 91 days or, you know, whatever, but it, it is very important for, for, for employers to encourage employees to be constantly asking those questions. I, I love that, Vib. Yeah. So lastly, I wanted to address a high-level evolution that we've witnessed for, the, for many years in the RA industry, and, and I, I have talked about this on the podcast before. When, when I got into this industry in the late 90s, the typical advisor pitch to a prospect was, Hey, I have a proprietary 27 stock portfolio that has performed very well across 
all kinds of business cycles. You should hire me because I'm going to make you rich. That was basically the pitch in the 90s. But now that presentation no longer discusses investment performance per se, but it goes something like, we want to be your holistic financial planner. We want to be the quarterback of your entire financial life. And in in order to do that, first, we need to start with your goals. How do you want to spend your money? And then once we've all agreed on that, we will work with you not only to devise an investment plan, but let's look at your spending and your budget as well. And we'll start with your end goal and then work backwards to ensure that you are set up properly. So Vib, tell us in your words how you've kind of seen this, this evolution. You and I have talked about it. I know you have seen sort of similar things. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, what is it, the $64,000 question, the million-dollar question, however you want to phrase it, this is it, right? And I think it's it's like this consistent paradigm shift, right? You, you know, we talked about our firm being, you know, being around for 80 years. We're working with multiple generations of clients that even within our own client base and client segments, we've got varying experiences, right? We've got our legacy clients who've been with us for multiple decades, you know, who have done well and you know, their MO is, hey, just keep doing what you're doing. Keep managing my assets, you know, where I need income, please generate income, you know, continue to find the opportunities in the stock market for me. And it's sort of business as usual, right? And then you've got the flip side, especially as we start thinking about, you know, all the metrics we hear about trillions of dollars, you know, transferring hands from one generation to the next and the evolution of expectations from clients, right? They're not thinking about the absolute value of performance, you know, why, you know, why Netflix only go up this percent or why my portfolio only go up that percent relative to the, to the benchmark or the market, right? It's, you know, I, I just had two, two kids, right, recently. Can I send them to college in 20 years, right? Or can I pay for my daughter's wedding? Or can I retire at this age? Or can I travel the world? Or should I take that trip? Or should I not take that trip, right? And so you start thinking about how people start to think about their money, and that's what's evolving, right? They're thinking about their money, as we've heard, in this goals-based mindset. How, do, how does it impact my life decisions where the finances, the money, comes into play, right? And then, you know, one of the things that we're taking sort of to heart and we're recognizing is, you know, who's at the discussion table when it comes to finances, right? How do we engage the non-CFO spouse, as, as you call it, right, in, in, into the conversation? How do we engage the next generation into the conversation now as opposed to after the fact, God forbid, when the parents pass away or something happens to them, right? So you start thinking about making it a family conversation, a household conversation, and then, oh, by the way, the expectations from the clients are changing too, right? Everyone now wants that Netflix, Uber, Amazon experience from a technology perspective, from an experience perspective, to, to have information at their fingertips in that sort of engaging way, right? And so these are all of the challenges that I think we as CEOs and just all of us in the industry are, are working towards solving. And then just when you think you've solved it, it shifts, right? So again, you think about... <laughs> The pandemic we're dealing with, and, you know, I've been checking in with all the various teams, how the conversation's going with clients, you know, obviously in, you know, late February, early March, when the market was really volatile, you know, I mean, obviously it still is. And I said, well, are, are clients freaking out? And, and, you know, the feedback I kept getting over and over again was, no, Vip, surprisingly, no. Actually, the questions we're getting more often than not is, hey, could you check my IRA account and make sure I've got my beneficiaries up to date, right? So you think about just the pure, tangible topics at top of minds of clients at various points in, in time, right? And so, you know, I think the, the whole premise I think here and the takeaway I think here, and again, you start thinking about the value of a CEO and organizations that are really doing well is just being adaptive, being, being nimble, right? Recognizing that it's a continuous evolution. It's a continuous paradigm shift. And so how do you continuously have the technology in place? How do you continuously have the processes in place? How do you continuously have the people in place to, to just keep the shift and the changes that are happening? Because it is changing. And, and that's what makes it exciting, I think. And so, 
kind of a long-winded way of answering your question, Matt, but I just think it's in a, it's a continuously evolving paradigm shift when it comes to this question. And Brandon, you and I have talked about this as well. So what do you think of this progression that our industry is taking towards goals-based investing? Yeah, no, I mean, I think from my perspective, this is the only way that it should be going. I mean, it's the only way that, that makes sense. The old model, in my opinion, just, just kind of goes against everything that I feel our main job focus in this industry is. And that's to serve those who have trusted us with their, their well-being, both you know, financially or, or I guess, oftentimes now, especially psycho- psychologically, to, to do right by them and to remove all that burden of worrying and life's major decisions. I think I've said this in my, my first, I think, kind of intro was our, our ideal clients are, are educated, right? They're, they're becoming more and more educated to the differences between these two models. And, and do I want someone who's just managing assets and telling me that they can perform really well? Or do I want somebody who is, or and a firm, not even just a someone, but a firm that is really focused on me, my family, my goals, my life. And, and I think more and more clients to, I think the benefit to all of us fiduciaries and RIAs are, are understanding that and becoming less and less concerned with the, the portfolio or kind of that, that tangible aspect. I mean, I think what we do is we, we sell trust which is really tough. That's earned and that's, that's, that takes time. But clients are becoming more understanding of, of that and, and really excited to say, hey, 5% of our meetings will be about what the portfolio did. The other 95, like, I have these five questions. Some of them are financially driven. Some of them are not. I need you as a sounding board. I need your support here. Um, and that, that shift in this goal-based planning and investing is really leading to these, these more deep, in, uh, deep conversations more complex conversations, which I think is where we show our value. And as a COO, we are continuing to build that, like they've said, this, this, the Netflix experience with technology, but it's kind of all integrating into these more complex conversations, which is pretty cool. I think clients really, at the end of the day, want to, be, want to feel supported and valued, just like our employees, just like everyone else. And the investment world, that's going to take care of itself. The value that firms like ours can, can really have for these families and individuals is to provide that experience. And I think you only get there when your focus is not on the investments, but it's, it's truly on their goals and achieving their success. Well, once again, we've had a great conversation here on the COO Roundtable. I can't thank Vib and Brandon enough for sharing their, their thoughts and their wisdom today, all, all of us from home. <laughs> um, <laughs> we've, we've received really great feedback from, from not only operations professionals, but I've been hearing from advisors as well that, that have been listening. They're all touting the information we've been sharing on this podcast, and the two of you have definitely added to this vast trove of information. So thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having us, Matt. Honored to be here. Thank you. Same. Enjoyed it. Awesome. Thanks. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you soon.